So, Ryan, you ever met anyone famous? Famous, famous, or our world famous? <laughs> There's a difference, isn't there? There's a big difference. Massive difference. Uh, I'm trying to think if I ever met anyone like really famous. Who was uh, Roger Clemens, the, the pitcher? That, this is before like all the steroid stuff came out and people started to not like him. I met him in an airport once, shook his hand. Huh. Which I'm very not that guy. I don't walk up to the famous person and say, hey, I'm somebody you don't know. I hate that. It's, I don't know what to say. Yeah, you can kind of say, I'm a fan of your work, thank you, or something, but uh, yeah. it is definitely awkward. This is baseball. I, I don't really watch baseball. It's like, hey, you're that guy. You're that guy. Like, that everyone knows. Yeah. Right. You know, Weird Al Yankovic used to do a thing where he would tweet out, I'm in the airport at this public payphone. Here's the number. I'll be here for two minutes. And it's like, I guess he was in the airport board, and you could call that number and talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> and I always that's thought great. that's a really good trick because he's not that giving is. out his real number. I should try. Yeah. We should try that and just sadly watch the phone not ring. Just crickets. <laughs> like, come on, guys, please. I don't know <laughs> if there's even. I can't remember the last time I saw a public payphone. To be honest, no, that's true. In a, I mean, in an airport. In the seminary world that I'm in a lot, I've met most of the people that would be considered somewhat celebrities. It may not be like we've had a long, intimate conversation, but you know, I've met presidents of schools and the you know famous professor of this and that from that school, we just, whether it's at a conference, passing by, that kind of thing. But probably the first time I really got that fanboy thing going on was when I was in college. You know, this is one of the weird things. I actually met people that, by my standard right now, I would have loved to have known who I was talking to. Heiko Obermann is this big historian. He's just Obermann. He's that famous. He's probably the most significant Luther scholar in the last 50 years. And, you know, he would just sit outside on a chair and smoke cigarettes and make Baptists feel uncomfortable <laughs> the whole time. And uh, I would just walk up to him and uh, I walked up to him. He was at a conference and just said, hey, I'm thinking about teaching. What do I do? I didn't know I was talking to some, you know, big dog. But the first time I really got into Reformation, you know, history, history of, of dogma, that kind of stuff, I was reading Alistair McGrath because he was so helpful in the... 90s, when he was really putting out a lot of that stuff, he was so helpful at explaining complex things in very accessible ways. Yeah, he's good at that. He's good at sort of breaking things down. Yeah, and unlike some history, he doesn't just tell you the dates and facts. He wants to, you to know the ideas. Mm -hmm. he, he really is a theologian in that sense. <laughs> and so I, I read him very, almost zealously. I, just, so I was one to read whatever was out by him. And this is really before Amazon, so you, you know... Every time I saw a new one on the shelf, I was like, cool. Like it was, it, it was like a new comic day, you know, mm -hmm, kind of right. thing. Wednesdays. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, so at one point, he, can't, he comes to Orlando, where I was, to do a lecture series. And I was invited. It was only about 40 people in the audience. It was going to be recorded, and we were the, the heads over which the camera shot is supposed to look. So it doesn't look like he's talking to an empty room, which was neat. So I got to sit there. He was talking about stuff I, I'm not a... I don't have much research interest in science and faith or these types of things. But it was interesting. <laughs> I just remember I arrived the first day, and I'm like, all right, I get to meet Alice McGrath. I wonder if he'll float. I wonder if he'll embrace me from all the years that we've known each other. <laughs> There's always these, like, irrational thoughts, like, what if we become besties? <laughs> you know, just, just dumb, like, I hope we have, like, long lunches and talk about life, you know. Just going to connect. Yeah, just just disconnect. You just want to because you've read their stuff. And I remember the first interaction with him. 
I, I have to use the restroom. So I go into the urinal and then sure enough, right up next to me is this, this British accent. Hello. <laughs> just, just right, right next to me. I was like, ah, Oh, Hey, Alistair. How you doing? Like, Al? <laughs> I'll shake your hand in a minute. Hold on. <laughs> and that thoroughly disabused me of fanboy syndrome for a while. It's like, all right, I'm, I'm not going to build this up in my mind anymore. You know, that whole Hillary Clinton thing at the, the debate where she had to go to the bathroom? Remember that bit? What, no. Well, you know, remember it took, it took a while for her to get, because the women's bathroom was far away. This was probably six months ago, but it was all in the news. Oh. That, that Trump was making fun of her for taking too long, but part of it was that the women's restroom was further away. But I just sort of thought, like, you know, because sometimes they're in these places, they're at a college or something, and who knows? It really could be that I mean, they got Secret Service or whatever, security, yeah. <laughs> but it's still, like, it, it's not some wonderful bathroom. It's just... Well, every time I have to have a, a lapel mic on, I and I have to go to the restroom, yeah. I'm always thinking... Naked gun. Naked, naked gun, gun. Exactly. Naked exactly. gun. Just the whole scene and, you know. And I've heard stories of where that's really happened. It happened recently to like a city councilman. He, <laughs> that's right. I think I saw yeah, that. I saw that video. But anyway, with the fanboy stuff, uh, you know, one of the things that's interesting about that is they are normal. It's, it's a dumb thing to say. It should be so obvious. But the issue isn't that you don't know they're normal. The issue is that you've spent so much time with them and they haven't seen your face. Yeah. They don't know who you are. There's a mismatched intimacy. Yeah, that's the way to put it, yeah. Here I had spent a lot of time learning from Alistair McGrath, and it really had become more like a teacher, professor, student thing in a way. But again, it was detached. And it, it sometimes raises the question about, you know, online education, which can be a challenge for that same reason. The students are more intimate with you and your teaching, but you probably couldn't match their face to their name sometimes. But... With the fanboy syndrome, it was always the sense of, all right, I got to you know keep my head about me because on the one hand, they'll be normal. They'll talk. You can thank them for their books. They'll, they'll probably have nothing to say back. <laughs> I've noticed that, by the way. I don't know about you, but I say, oh, thank you for your books. They've been great. Usually it's just, oh, thanks. Like, <laughs> like what are they supposed to do? Yes, I know. <laughs> yeah. You know, yes, I know. I wrote that for people like you. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's a word specificity that, that, that I think is required. So in the conversation, you're saying, I like the book, and, and that's so general that, it, like, where does it go? A conversation needs specifics. Yeah, it in does. In a sense. But it's, it's, unless you had the book in front of you, you know, like, so if you had the book or it was really fresh, you could say, you know, chapter five, when you talked about this part. Yeah. Then the person could respond because they could interface. They could be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that was a, I thought that was a really important part of the book, and, and you've really you know, identified something or, or, yeah. you know, I struggled with that bit. You can't really do that exactly normally when you meet someone. And also they, the truth is the author probably doesn't remember. If you were to talk right. about chapter five, they'd be like, it's probably oh, been five years. It's probably yeah. been five years. And so to you, it's fresh. And to, to you, right. you've had this really intimate connection with them because you were basically in their mind for several hours uh, yeah. or, or longer, all days, really. Yeah. That's true with my dissertation. You know, that I, you know, you expect it because it, it took so long to write it that you would say, well, I remember sitting at my desk sharpening my pencil, mm -hmm. you know, and then I wrote that paragraph. It's like, I've gone back and read sections of my dissertation occasionally, just to, like years later. I'm like, oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I don't even remember like how I got to that argument. It, it really is a bit weirdly existential piece to that. And no, you're right about how far away it is from the author's mind. 
The specificity thing is really interesting. I, I've been telling students when they go on for doctoral work, if you want to make a connection with somebody in the guild, whatever subfield you're in, don't just simply write them and say, hey, I'm so-and-so, I'm working on a PhD, hope to see you soon, you know, maybe we'll get to know each other. All you'll maybe get back is, cool, hope to see you. Like, right. you won't actually make a connection. What can they say? Yeah, what can they say? Well, okay, you want, you want to have tea tomorrow? Like, right. I'll fly to you. You know, no, they're not going to say that. But if you write and say, hey, I'm working on this, uh, I wondered if you have any, you know, pointers, any suggestions, any roadblocks in the research that you've seen, like if you actually start conversing with them as the actual real person that they are, then you can actually start to get to know them and develop a relationship. Yes, yes. And you've got to give them things to interact with. So that person may also like Captain America or may also, you know, enjoy football, American football, whatever, but you're going to have to connect with them and, and, and give them the specifics. You're going to have to meet them. And yeah, what is it you really want to study? What interests you about Baltazar? What interests you about Luther? And then all of a sudden they can kind of unlock that. Yeah. When I was in Cambridge, actually, one of the big guys in English ref is Stephen Alford, who in our world, it'd be one of those guys you're like, oh, I really want to get to know him. You know, outside of English history, English ref, it's, he's not going to be as well known. But he's at King's in Cambridge. So I mean, he's, he's, he's an accomplished scholar. Young guy, probably, you know, five, six years older than me, I think. But I just wrote him one time. I said, hey, can we have a beer? I'd like to talk and about this, that, and the other. He said, sure. And then so we go to a pub and we start talking. And as you're just saying, it turns out he's just a, a profoundly deep lover of American blues. Huh. He'd actually gone to like Memphis and other places and done that whole like, you know, like U2 when they did their rattle and hum, yeah. like like uh, blues uh, arc. Delta their, tour. Yeah, that's right. Well, he, he'd kind of done something similar personally uh -huh. and, you know, gone down Route 66, all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, jealous? Because like that when I was into music, I, I like when I wasn't into rock and stuff, I went back to blues because that was the basis of rock. And I, I really liked Stevie Ray Vaughan and things. And so we, we actually just spent an hour talking about blues and hmm. favorite bands. And and then we only then transitioned to talking about the subject. So it was like, cool. All right, this is this is the way that you want to have a relationship with somebody. Yeah, that's right. And a uh, flip side of that, I was very uh, influenced by Diogenes Allen, who taught at Princeton Seminary. He was the philosophy guy, uh, but he he just taught lots of interesting topics, and I just really loved his. Let's be honest: if your name is Diogenes Allen, you have to be a philosopher. You have to be Diogenes. Yeah, <laughs> you can't. You can't. But then be. I think uh, his he was known among his colleagues as Dick, so it was Dick Allen which is all of a sudden a very different name. It's kind of like a short, not did, as exciting. What? Well, Diogenes, How, Diogenes became did, Dick, so. Hey, not Dio, not, not you know, <laughs> something else. like <laughs> The band? What? I'm going to start calling you Dick. Like, it's not even close well, to Richard. I, I Richard guess so, but I guess it, the D-I, yeah, I, I guess if it's saying Diogenes, Diogenes, that's four syllables, so, you know, ain't nobody got time for that. No. So. Yeah. I just start calling him D. What up, D? What's up, D? <laughs> Uh, he, he influenced me a lot. I just loved his classes. And they had a neat thing at Princeton Seminary where you could take a professor to lunch. So you'd go and ask and they would give you basically the, a little credit thing, a little piece of paper, and the professor got to eat for free in the cafeteria. Cool. And then you would sit and talk with him. Yeah, it was a neat little program. And um, so that was sort of a big deal to ask him to go to lunch. And, and then he, I remember he started talking about flying in planes or something, like something just very mundane. 
I was let down because I thought, you know, he was this great philosopher and we would talk about the meaning of life. And instead he was just a normal <laughs> yeah. guy. And he's like, well, have yeah. you ever flown in first class? Or he, I think he flew pl- something with, well, it's been a long time, aeronautics. And I yeah. just like, I can't believe we're talking about this, but he didn't know what to talk about. So no, he's like, yeah, he was fishing. Could you take any professor at any point? Like, or yeah. was it like once a semester? Yeah. They might have capped point. you that you can only do a, they, they probably had a cap of, a couple of that's brilliant though i mean that's something that you know i might suggest to our our administration because we're always saying how do we connect them yeah and we'll do brown bag stuff that's really cool but the idea of hey i really want to talk to you and here's a free lunch and let's go do it yeah yeah and so the school's paying for it but the professor of course feels honored and then everyone likes a free lunch and then it also creates that we're going to have a conversation there was a specific yeah you know because then the professor feels indebted in a sense to have lunch, obviously. You're not just going to get it to go and leave. Uh-huh. Uh, I guess you could be that guy. It's like, great, thanks for lunch. Yeah. <laughs> walk off. <laughs> that would be the greatest, like, just walk in and get a brown bag. Like, all right, see you, thanks. Uh, yeah, email me your questions. I'm, I'm good, you know. <laughs> Actually, there is a story. I won't name the person, but it's someone who teaches at uh, Princeton Seminary. They had a, uh, well, the school had a raffle for missions and things where, you know, like, uh, People would have dinner with the professor at his home or, you know, so that's, what do they call that when you raffle off? Like an auction kind of thing? Kind of an auction thing for things for the day. But it's like, you know, dinner with the, or various items or whatever. And so one of them was a dinner with his The lamest bachelor auction ever. Something, yeah, a lame bachelor, a a Christian bachelor auction. (laughs) So uh, this one professor, it was dinner at his house and some people showed up with a bottle of wine and for some reason, he opened the wine and then just drank it by himself. <laughs> like never poured them any or something. It's like, he's like, oh, thanks for the wine. Like and straight then, out of the bottle? No, I think he had a glass, but he just like had one glass and he just kept drinking it. And they just sat there. That's epic. Like, I mean, I think you. they had I dinner, but I, I guess, I don't know if. I'll put it on the windowsill behind him. Like, no, I'll put it over here behind me. I'm good. No. Could I have some? No. Uh, yeah, in a minute. In a minute. Hey, God. Yeah. Yeah, or just a, just like one of those really long crazy straws, just like <laughs> sipping on the bottle. <laughs> that's that's a that's an interesting move. Just you know, we've talked about this before, though. Some professors are just wildly eccentric. You know, they're yes. just, they're not going to be able. They've to, been in the library a long time. Yeah, and they're just not aware sometimes of social graces, and maybe they thought someone brought them wine because here, this is for you. Yeah, or maybe he thought liability. He didn't want to serve them wine, and then. Something that happens, is actually a thing, yeah. But but they brought it, but it's like, oh, thanks for this gift. But yeah, I haven't had too many meetings with famous people. You know, when I was a kid, we were at the Outer Banks, the Kitty Hawk in North Carolina, where the Wright brothers flew their plane. And yeah. I was young. I was probably 10 or something. And I was convinced the guy in the row ahead of me was Harrison Ford. I was totally convinced of it because we were having like a talk about, wow. you know, thing. And so I asked him, when the little talk ends about the significance of the Wright brothers and all that, I said, are you Harrison Ford? And he looked just completely stunned. He's like, what? No, he didn't. It's almost like he didn't know who that was. Oh. And I was so crushed. But then later I thought- Or did he? Well, that was the thing. (laughs) I was old enough that later I thought maybe it was him and he just plays dumb. Well, Harrison Ford is an aviator. He flies. Well, you know, it makes sense that he might have gone to Kitty Hawk to kind of visit, but- He almost died like two years ago. He crashed his plane. He's uh, kind of a man's man, isn't he? He like is Indiana Jones. We just have to admit that. Wow. 
you know. He did a lot of his own stunts, didn't he? Even didn't he break something when in Force Awakens filming? Yeah, I think he yep. broke his. There was ankle some or limits something. because yeah, he hurt something. He's, he's like seventy something now. Yeah, I mean, that's weird. But uh, I did think later, like maybe that's what he always says. And I also thought, and it's weird that guy. No one's pointed that out because to me it was obvious that he yeah. looked a lot like him. So I was very confused as a child. I thought, wait a minute. But I haven't met too many sort of theological heroes. I've known people that then I later realized were heroes in a sense. I remember knowing Michael Ward at Cambridge and yes, and yeah. sort of finding out, or, or I guess I knew him before he wrote Planet Narnia. And then yeah, that same, became yeah. su- such a big um, publication and he, pu- and he pushed it so masterfully as well. I mean, he was going to book yeah. launches and going to America, went through several printings. So uh, it's like I knew someone, but I was comfortable because I had known him beforehand. I mean, it's Spud. It's Spud. Yeah, and that's what he wanted to be called. You know, the, one of the things about the, the book is the show Sherlock that BBC runs from... No, wait, it's, it's, the BBC has it, but it runs, I think, on PBS here. Mm-hmm. The one with uh, Brandon Cumberbatch. Benedict and Cumberbatch. Even worse. Benedict. Benedict. Yes, Benedict. Traitor. Oh, traitor. <laughs> I just think of him as Smaug. From the Hobbit movie, he was the voice of the dragon. Remember? Yes, yes. Yeah, which was very weird because the the guy playing the Hobbit was also the guy that's his co-star in Sherlock. Yeah, it was like this weird cross thing. But anyway, but in the Sherlock show, he always has some books when he's sitting in his chair thinking about his case. And someone pointed out on Facebook, I remember it was years ago, that Spud's book is sitting on the shelf. Really? Like they had put Planet Narnia right there. Yeah, oh, that's funny. Uh, I don't know if it was on purpose. I don't know if they wanted to signal some appeal to great literature or something. But yeah, or somebody just had it. Maybe they put it up there. But my guess is they probably just buy boxes of books and they thought it looked good. It could have been on a bestseller list. They were looking for the ones that are kind of hot right now. Set designers, I know, try to think like, okay, what are a lot of people buying, and then people might recognize that from their shelf, kind of a thing. But but it was kind of neat. Hey. It was like, wait, that's Spud's book, and that's you know the cool show that everyone likes right now. That's right. Have you seen the movie about Planet uh, Narnia? There's no. a movie, a DVD got made about sort of Spud's discovery and C.S. Lewis and things. I have it on DVD, and I think it's on iTunes for $10, $15. I hope he wears a fedora. <laughs> uh, he's got to wear a fedora because it, it's, it, it's, it's as close to an Indiana Jones kind of thing as you yes, get yeah. in research. Like, okay, we've read the Narnia books. It's just great books. By the way, here's the almost Da Vinci Code key to reading the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Like, Remember the opening to Raiders of the Lost Ark and the girl's written, I love you on her eyelids? Yes. I think yeah, about yeah. that sometimes now that I'm up in front of a classroom. I think that would just be the creepiest thing ever. Like, yeah. That would, and, just... and, no, and that's the most unrealistic thing in that whole movie. No one hits on the professor. <laughs> well, unless it's uh, Indiana unless Jones. Unless it's <laughs> Yeah. But. It's certainly not us. Not us. No, no. They just we write the "I love you" on our eyelids, like like right, me. Right. I love you. <laughs> there is a site called Rate My Professor, which I've never gone on because I figure I would just cry when I read stuff. But supposedly, yeah. they get, you get a chili pepper if you are cute. Oh, I'm gonna look so, it up for you now. I'm not on it. I've looked. I'm no one. None of my students, thankfully, have put me on that. Really? Um, yeah. I thought it was just kind of standard. I don't know how. I think they still use it. They were using it a couple of years ago. Students were looking. Well, there are other Gordon Conwell professors that are on there, different campuses and stuff. It's just, thankfully, my students have more important things to do 
than skewer me publicly. Skewer, yeah. <laughs> well, I think sometimes they say nice things. Like it just depends. But I, I know if I saw the one or two mean things, you just it would just like ruin your month. So Kevin Smith talked about that with um, what was his movie? The one that had Ben Affleck in it, didn't it? Oh, like one of the beginning ones, his first ones. Uh, no, it was like his fifth movie. But it was one that was just kind of skewered by everyone, the critic. It had George Carlin in it, and the guy was a widow. Was it the one raising... about the angels? No, it was him raising his daughter. But but he got skewered. In yeah, the, he got skewered room. for it. And uh, he, he he spent a lot of time reading the discussion boards, and it just like ruined six months of his life. Like He was basically oh, yeah, you in can't major do depression that. because he just read all the awful things people had put about it. I thought it was actually kind of a sweet movie. is about parenting and things, but people really hated it. For some reason, he did a run in a comic, in a DC comic series with the Batman, the Widening Gyre, I think it was called, and um, it just wasn't that good. It was strangely gory and didn't really have a core plot that was as good as. I mean, when you're going up against guys like Joss Whedon, you know, who's awesome at it, you know, it was a B. I would give it a B, B around that range. Right. But I can't imagine like he's such a comic geek. You know, you go and try your hand at. You know, once you get famous enough, you write for it and. It's just not as good as you'd hoped. That, that's that got to be harder, you know. Because, I mean, at least for me, doing theology and writing theology and historical theology, this isn't what I grew up thinking, obviously, thinking I was going to be, do, you know. I always say it's like a skill trade that I learned over the years. You know, when I was a kid, I wanted to play music, do something else. But, you know, for guys like Kevin, his whole life really growing up was comics and toys and he's still in that world i mean his mm-hmm. first movie was about a guy who's a comic book colorist and writer mm-hmm. and you know to then like try to be that and not be like i don't know that would be hard for me yeah to, to try to do the thing you grew up loving well we've talked about this before that when you peak early that's always a problem and that's i think an issue for kevin smith that clerks and mall rats and chasing amy and even Dogma are considered to be such great movies and representative of his work. And then everything after that has been kind of just, you know, he's been, un, I think, unfairly criticized because people yeah. want Clerks again and again and again. And he actually made a Clerks too, which I don't, I never saw. Well, it's like the Quentin Tarantino thing. It's, it's actually phenomenal that he's sustained. Yeah, Tarantino has been able to. Like, did you ever see Hateful Eight? Yes. Yeah, it was great. It was great. I think Tarantino is almost like Hitchcock. You know, there, there's a Hitchcock style to everything, right? Mm-hmm. It's not all the same story, but and it, and it was different genres and things. But when you're watching a Hitchcock movie, you're always going, oh, this is totally Hitchcock. It just feels like him. And Quentin has the same thing. I mean, the three-way standoffs, you know, all those things mm-hmm. that always tend to happen in his stories, the, obviously the violence and the gratuitous stuff. The subtle twists, but not a, not really a twist ending per se. That the Hateful Eight has a little bit more of that, and he says he only has like two or three more, and then he's done forever. I think he said. But then you look at somebody like M Night Shyamalan, who had the one yeah. just incredible one, and he had an okay couple after that, and then it just started to just swirl in the commode. Yeah, Shyamalan is kind of, in some ways, like Kevin Smith. Um, is it Shyamalan? Uh, no one knows. Shamala Hamana Hamana Hamana. <laughs> we'll just call it M. M. Night Shamalan. He's got that show now called um, Something Peaks or something. Welcome huh. to. It's like a town, but something's wrong in it. Twin Peaks? No, no, it's not Twin Peaks, but it sounds like Orchid Pines or something. Wayward Pines. Wayward Pines. That's it. Huh. It's called Wayward Pines. I haven't seen it, but it's in a s- season two. Somehow he's behind that. But uh, M. Night also did that. 
Unbreakable movie with Bruce Willis, and I thought that was great. Yeah, I've always that, been was, a that was the second one. Yeah, and uh, actually, Quentin Tarantino put that on his top ten list as well of movies really? ever. He he, uh, he put Unbreakable on there, and M Night had the one with Mel Gibson, with the, yeah. and that's a good one. Yeah, the the one about aliens was fine until the it was the end that there's just like. So all this time, and you're gonna beat him with a baseball bat. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like, like go get him, and he's just holding the baby with like his little wrist spray that he might, I'm gonna kill it, I'm gonna kill it, and then yeah, that's where I felt like, I don't know, it's like the Wojciechowski brothers with the Matrix two and three. At some point, it's like they started to read, they read their own press clippings in a bad way. Mm-hmm. It, it was like the sense of like, oh, I'm really good, I, I'm philosophical, I'm gonna <laughs> like do extra stuff on my movies versus just, Hey, this is a good story and like be really diligent to it. But yeah, I remember here, like who was the guy with the bat? Uh, it was the guy from her Joaquin uh, Phoenix. Wa- yeah. Joaquin. Yeah. I just remember Mel Gibson like, go, like, like slug away. Just something like some, it was like an Arnold Schwarzenegger line at the end. Yeah. He didn't quite bring bad. it together from it's like that. That's where I, you know, they always look for the jump the shark moment. That's where I think it jumped the shark. Because uh, it was a it was a great intense movie. The, the kids were um, great in that movie, and the tinfoil hats and and yep. he, he was really good directing children. You, you'll see that some a director is able to really get a kid to yeah to to nail it. And other times you can tell they're just trying to get the kid off the set. It's like yeah, that's right. Well, he just yeah. he gave his lines and let's move on. My funny bit about the Matrix is when after Matrix Two, which I thought was fine. It was good. It was nothing like the first one, but it was fine. It was interesting. It had the great fight scene in the cars and the highway. I just remember the opening where it was like, see, this is what I know what they were trying to say. After being programmed by robots, you almost go primal. And they're like, but they're dancing around in loincloths. And then like people are having sex. In the and cave. It was like this that very weird, yeah. like, I couldn't quite. That again, was terrible. I immediately got, I get what, I know what's going on. You're saying we're becoming more human by being less robotic and machine oriented but it was just it was so on the nose i guess right but the ending you know he seems to have powers in the real world is how that ended in matrix 2 and so it ends there of course everyone's wanting to see matrix 3 well a friend speculated he said what if he never got out of the matrix what if he's still in it he's just at a higher level and i thought oh that is so great and then when matrix 3 came out and that wasn't true i was left thinking Oh, I like the other guys. You know, I like the theor- theory better than the yeah. actual movie because this movie just had a lot of people shooting each other. You know, it's I've heard. Um, uh, I think how many Shrek movies are there now? Four or something? Mm-hmm. Like the first three were phenomenal, right? Mm-hmm. First one is terrific, especially. First one is terrific. The other two are really great as well. They're they're only a maybe a, a half step down at, at worst. And someone, I remember at least for the second one. They crowdsourced it. This is before you could even really... Crowdsourcing was a thing. But they put out... I forget where they put it, but they put out all kinds of notes and requests for jokes and subplots and inside jokes that people would find funny. Huh. Because it's riffing off of fairy tales, and usually there's some like joke connection to today. Things like the wolf that's trying to eat Little Red Riding Hood isn't disguising himself. He's just a cross-dresser. Like, so he's always just wearing a dress. <laughs> right. You know, like that kind of like silly inside joke thing. And so they crowdsource it. And they, they said they got thousands and thousands of comments and suggestions. And they just took the best ones. And like they had all this material. It was just brilliant. Mind it, yeah. Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. Did you just, have you watched it? Yes, I watched it? it the other night. Amazing. Yeah. 
So you've seen the guitar scene. <laughs> the guitar scene is well, you know, that's one of the movies. It's so metal. It's got it's, a, it's got great. fire coming out of the guitar, and he's kind of hanging off the side of a of a yeah, truck. Yeah. Uh, that's a movie where the trailer I thought made the movie look not appealing to me. It just looked like another Fast and Furious type movie, a lot of action. So I really wasn't interested in seeing it until it got all these Academy Awards and and it's got yeah. like a ninety seven percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes and I and then it was ten bucks on iTunes. I thought I, I'm just going to get it. I'm curious. And sometimes I do want to escape into a nice action thing, but I, I just found it amazing. It was so immersive. It, yeah, I noticed no one talks about the world. They never explain anything. No. So which is per, which is what you do in sci fi, right? You don't monologue about. By the way, do you realize that we're in a weird world where we have all these powers? Like, yeah. No, you just you just act different. You know. You act different, and and so yeah, there's all these questions about their sort of religious beliefs. You know, sort of yeah. what is it? See me or something? They they want basically people yeah. to witness oh, me. Uh, witness me. Witness me. They want you, and they believe in Valhalla and you know they have Valhalla, but then they you know do you know why they were spraying their teeth? Did you catch that? I figured it was just a drug of some sort. What is it? No, what it is, of course, is gasoline or guzzoline they call it now mm-hmm. so there's, there's this interesting linguistic thing where they realize that dystopian like without people to correct your grammar and your sp- pronunciations words might change yeah so, which is true but it would change anyway to be honest even if they well, were true yeah but, but they quickly call it guzzoline well they worship the car that's why they have the the the, the steering wheel on like this rack that's yeah. only theirs but when they think they're about to die they spray chrome on their mouth they spray their face to, to, to mimic that they're a machine, that they're going to Valhalla. So it's this weird mixing of mystical, the, the leader, what's his name? Uh, Immortan John is going to you know lead you to Valhalla, perhaps. And so it's very much old world, but then it's, I'm going to machine myself, make myself mm-hmm. look more mechanical, because that's what's appealing. Because that's what's lost. Like The world is now back to primal, so therefore the machines are the things that you worship. Yeah, it's actually a really interesting move for a dystopian book. I'm I'm thinking, you know, most of them just show society falling apart. But this really is kind of showing society being rebuilt with these bits left over from the old society. So they they can repair the, somehow they're repairing engines and they can keep the cars running and they're modifying them. But they can't really, they probably can't make steel anymore, aluminum or anything. No, no, yeah. They've lost these, these technologies that's right or the awareness or the knowledge of how to do it but they haven't lost completely they're not just in caves or they're not walking dead or they're opening cans yeah, you know, yeah. type thing like it's the more thing than that. The, the most poignant part of the movie that i really drew me in the first time well besides the opening where he bites that lizard which was just like what yeah like, immediately but besides the fact that there's virtually no dialogue which we've mentioned before which is amazing that you can tell a story without really having to talk much the thing that drew me in was when obviously this and Morton John is a, trying to be Messiah, but he's a false Messiah. He's trying to make people worship him, which is, even though he's diseased, he puts on all this gimmick to, to, to look you know, more majestic. But you know, when he gives them water, all the people down on the ground, mm-hmm. and then he stops and he says, he says something pious. It, it was almost like bittersweet because the way he just says, don't let your love of water enslave you or something like, something very, yeah. it, it was just like, you need water. Like it's not enslaving you. It's it's the it, I mean you know the the language of uh, from the New Testament of the thirsty shall shall get water. They, they, that's kind of a thing. There's all kinds of echoes going on here. But the the phrase "Don't let your love of water enslave you" is like it's a it's a functional 
absolute need. It's not a it's not a craving. It's not gluttonous to want water. Maybe that's what it is. The themes of a of of something like that when they work, they go five different directions almost at once. Like you can you can almost allegorize it in a way, think about it that way, or you can just be like, "Whoa, that's weird. That's crazy. Like, why would you treat another human this way?" Oh man, and the way they treat women in the movie, you know, mm-hmm. if it, there's this has come up sometimes in sci-fi, you know, if fertility is on the wane, then you you don't actually cherish women, you objectify them. You have mother's milk, which is something you take from them because you want it. They don't get the, it's not part of their body. Right. It's just very interesting themes. Yeah, uh it, it's a very masculine, very violent world and so they worship vehicles they worship you know and, and they're doing crazy stunts as well i mean they're they're tied to the ends of of trucks and they're on those weird pole things and, and pole cats. yeah these yeah. Uh, there's there's all this kind of just it's almost like a um, extreme sports it's like extreme yeah. sports and and like you said a a concern about fertility and then the cars and then just that dust and, and the water and just all these, all these elements that make it um, so great. I was really impressed with the movie and the plots. I, you know, I'm old enough now. I can either see where it's going or I can imagine. I can think, well, this is probably where it'll go. It's rare yeah. that I'm surprised. But in Mad yeah. Max, and spoiler alert, but when they're at the edge of that salt plane and she says, let's keep going. Yeah. And he says, no, we should go back. I thought, yeah. what? But then I realized like they were right. And it, well, A, the movie is really about being on the road. So it would yeah. make sense for them to go back on the same road. But also like that's how you end the movie is they take over the city. And I had no idea that would happen. Yeah, restore the city, don't run from it. Yeah, yeah. I assume they would go somewhere else. And you know, that's usually the kind of apocalyptic movie is escape and get to an island or get somewhere different or there's a there's an emerald city somewhere you know, like door like the wizard of oz like we're gonna go and then i'm gonna get to go home with magic but in this it's like nah we'll just go into the the lion's den yeah gritty yeah the nitty yeah. gritty of it. And, yeah and and so then the whole fight scene continues which is yeah. what the movie was about also it, the movie is really about the thrill of the fight and it can't be over yet so i i just thought it was masterful how freaked out were you when you saw the crow people that was cool in the marsh because it, it's perfect one, it looked Edgar Allan Poe-esque, mm-hmm. just this kind of, or, or even worse, like something out of a real dark comic or something. And I remember, it's just weirdos walking around with crows on their yeah. backs and stuff. And, you know, people in the truck just look out there and they're like, huh? See, and I, I, noticed, I noticed both the beauty of it, the scene, yeah. and these weird creatures, like you said, the Edgar Allan Poe. But you also get Tom Hardy and the Mad mm-hmm. Max people in the, in the car you see their faces and and again there's, they're, there's freaked, no, out they're freaked out but they're kind of curious yeah. but they, like yeah. like we're saying they don't ever explain it we don't know who the crow people are we don't they're like these swamp people on poles but uh yeah just very evocative and then the scene ends yeah and they tell you later what that is when i first saw it i was like oh i guess that's just some crazy idea they thought up but it actually all that's the thing like a puzzle it all clicked into place everything fit mm-hmm. there was no real scene that didn't have a place in it, it it's I don't know. We've all read books like this, heard albums like this, read book, you know, fiction or nonfiction books, and, and when everything just seems to fit, and it's just you can't imagine how they got it so perfect. That's what that story is. It's not for everybody, of course. It's it's very violent, and it's got not everyone likes dystopian stories, but the point of dystopia is to say something about us now. It's not to just be creatively about, hey, look how weird it is in the future. So I actually started watching Minority Report, little bits and 
pieces here. The TV show? Yeah. No, the um, yeah, the Spielberg movie. Oh, with, it's so good. Uh, I love that movie yeah. so much. That got the that was best picture of the year. Yeah, but it was Philip K. Dick. You know, it was one of the old short stories. And I didn't know that at the time, but you know, the whole point of that movie is what is freedom when you when you can control everything. It's the whole point, mm-hmm. and it's a good question, particularly now. You know, we're talking about borders and things and politics and uh, refugees, which we don't have to get into, but. The, the, the point is, is if you, if you have the power to stop and control everything, do you end up becoming worse off than if you just allowed for freedom? You know, how do you, you know, the future crime. You're, man, that, that opening scene, though, of the husband catching his wife, having an affair, and then he gets, it, he's the one who almost seems to have the injustice done on him because he's arrested for a crime he hasn't committed, right. but, he might, but he's about to commit. That scene of, again, Spielberg and, and the short story, they make you almost not approve of the murder that <laughs> where he's about to kill his wife and her lover, but you could almost understand why he's just insanely distraught and it might do something really bad. It's that bad. But then immediately flips it and suddenly you're like, wait, he didn't do anything. He didn't do it. Right. <laughs> like, how is he being arrested? That juxtaposition is really well done. I thought. Well, and then yeah. to have the main character, the, mm-hmm. I just blanked uh, on his name, the actor, Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise. I want to say Tom Hanks, different Tom. Hey, we've had three yeah. Toms, Tom Hardy, now Tom Hanks and Tom Cruise. Ding. Ding. But I love him in that Tom Cruise in that kind of movie. He's just great in the action movie. And he says run and he's being chased. And, you know, yeah. he's just a strange personal life. But I don't watch him for his personal life. I watch him for his for his entertainment yeah. value. And, and he, was at, he was still at the height of his powers in that, that show. Was, but I think he still is. I mean, the last Mission Impossible was great. So he's still. Oh, yeah. no, that's true. And he's, he's, he doesn't age. I mean, he, he's still. I mean, you can tell he's a little older, but. Back in the day, he used to do more like he would do an action flick, and then he'd do something like Magnolia, where he's it's yeah. real dramatic. He's getting less and less of the dramatic roles. Right. Uh, I don't know why. Maybe they're not written for a guy's age. It's kind of like uh, what's his name? Oh, who's the Deer Hunter? He was in all the mafia movies. Robert De Niro. De Niro. Yeah. De Niro. And like now he's in every silly grandpa movie, or like he's the he's the yeah. Silly I'm grandpa. afraid it's just typecasting. Yeah, I think so. And, and, and he's and, probably making a lot of money too. So yeah, he probably is. Did you see the Live Die Repeat movie? That one was great. That was terrific. Yeah. And again, Tom Cruise doing his thing. Yeah, and and the whole thing of I feel bad that the movie was misnamed. It wasn't that it had a different name before. They changed Edge it of to Tomorrow Live Die or something. It was Edge of Tomorrow, which yeah. sounds horrible. Yeah. But they changed it to Live Die Repeat which is probably a little more compelling. But yeah, no, I watched it, and I remember thinking, how are they going to make this just not Groundhog Day? Just keep going yeah, and going that was and going. the first thing you think of is Groundhog Day. But it, it actually ratcheted up the suspense because it keeps happening over and over again. Yeah, yeah. C- kind of like Memento when it went backwards. Yeah, that kind of time loop thing. Of course, the problem with mm-hmm. those sorts of plot lines is you would really just lose your mind. I mean, after about six days, you, you, you could not, the human mind, I think, it would be like solitary confinement, basically. Yeah, because you could not communicate with someone on a new level, which is an underappreciated reality, a philosophical reality to Groundhog Day with uh, what's his name. We're not doing well with names today. I will say that. Yeah, yeah, um, it's summer. Bill. <laughs> Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, Groundhog Day. Bill Murray. Uh, Bill Murray. Yeah, I was gonna I was about to quote uh, Caddyshack to get us back to remember right. his name. Bill Murray and Groundhog Day. He kills himself like four times in the middle of it, and it's it's like ha ha. He comes back, mm-hmm. but. Like, there is a touch of madness that happens. Yeah. And one of the other things I noticed the last time I watched it years ago is he doesn't just learn a little bit of piano. He goes from like basic to classical pianist, which takes years, which signals something about how long he's been in this loop. 
I've heard some people talk that uh, their theories that he's been in there for thousands of years. I mean, you, you could really read the movie that way. There, there's no he learns languages. Yeah, yeah. So there's no there's no limit to how really it seems because it's in an hour and a half. It's sort of brief, but there's you definitely could read the movie as he's been in there for just eons almost yeah uh you know that's yeah, yeah. a that was taken into the american film institute or library of congress i think is a really? is a movie of lasting cultural significance so like they you can see the list of movies but they'll they'll pick a movie and preserve it in terms of library of congress oh yeah 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 i've seen some of this so yeah. um so that's one of them they took the seinfeld i think puffy shirt one they always take one biopsy sample of like a great show yeah or, or obviously the whole movie, but if it's they won't take the the entirety of the show, but they'll take one of its quintessential episodes. And it's usually late. They you know it's ten years later. They'll give it some time to kind of see what has yeah. had cultural impact before they beatify it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just, you know. They investigate its oh. miracles. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, John Paul II. I think he did some miracles, but All in the Family that show is full of crap. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to beatify that. Yeah, though I think they took like. The Smithsonian has his chair, the Archie Bunker chair. Archie Bunker chair. Yeah, what was it? The, the Film Institute. Yeah, they take uh, samples. That's right. Yeah, that's neat. That's neat. Well, um, here's to meeting our theological heroes. Yeah, and and realizing they're normal. Realizing they're normal. And treating them as normal. Yeah. That kind of a and thing. And the weird dissonance of books, that it creates creates an intimacy. Books and movies. And yeah, because I would probably feel the same way if I met an actor. I'm not yeah, planning on meeting one right. but... As I would just say, hey, I liked you in that, but you don't know that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a weird sense where you're intimate with them and they're yeah. not with you. Yeah. Like if you watch Seinfeld the whole run, you've been watching Jerry Seinfeld for nine years. Yeah. Well, and on that note, it's really sad to announce or comment on the passing of John Webster. Yes. Um, he was a man who was, uh, I've heard all kinds of stories. I, I, did, I don't know his work as intimately as others. He's more purely dogmatics, but he always had like 10. PhD students. He was always mentoring all kinds of folks, but in many ways, a guy who gave his whole life to his students and to his work. So I met him once, shook his hand once. He came to Cambridge, and it was just normal. He just said, "Oh, great. What are you working on?" You know, he's a friendly guy. Didn't know anything about my field, but didn't blow me off as a result. Mm-hmm. You know, even though he probably could have. But uh, I know a lot of my friends, our friends, are, are mourning because they were his. Fr- they were they were close with him. So uh, just wanted to note that. Yeah, he's uh, considered an, an important Bardian scholar, among other things. So, And he was interested in, in Reformed theology, although he was Anglican, correct? Correct. Yeah, and, and one of the things he, he was looking for are weaknesses in at least the wider American-UK evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of anti-intellectualism, it's reductionisms, those things. He was all, I mean, the, the paper he read at Cambridge was, is justification the only doctrine by which the church stands and falls? And he's like... No, that's nonsensical. You only you can't just have a one doctrine faith. It all has to web out to Trinity and Christology and all these other issues that come up. So just just he, he was very good at all those things. Yeah, there's an element I think of surprise in his work that people thought that they tried to pigeonhole him, but he would like the story you just told. He would kind of move in different directions. Yeah, like I, I don't think he his recent work has been more constructive and less on Bart. Whereas typically somebody that's in a Bart is always a Bart person. Yes, that's right. But I think he kind of moved beyond it. But, but like you, I, I'm not real acquainted with his works. But uh, something I need to add to my list. Yeah, but sad to hear about his passing. Absolutely. Yeah, age sixty. That's um, it's pretty depressing. All right, man. We'll we'll talk again yeah, soon. Yeah, and uh, just always appreciate our our great listeners and remind them to like us on iTunes and 
spread the word and we're on Facebook and on Twitter and on SoundCloud and on, uh, I think there's a Boy Scout camp email <laughs> server for the Weebelows and we're on that as well. So look for us in all those places. Good night, Denmark. We, we love you. <laughs>